We live in a society which values individual freedoms, but we come from a place which valued kinship and group ties above all else. Impulse toward the rule of the clan is a deep-seated part of uh, human social organization. In some ways, it's as deeply seated in our social organization as our psychological and sexual drives are in human nature as, as well. I'm ABA Journal podcast editor Lee Rawls, and today we're speaking with Mark S. Weiner, author of The Rise of the Clan: What an Ancient Form of Social Organization Reveals About the Future of Individual Freedom. So, Mark, what led you to write The Rule of the Clan? So I began writing The Rule of the Clan in northern Iceland. My wife and I were living in a very small town called Akureyri in the very northern part of the country, just snug up against the Arctic Circle, where very improbably there's a law school. So there I was. I was teaching about American constitutionalism. And at the same time, I was really interested in the Icelandic legal past, especially the history of the Icelandic Middle Ages. One of the fascinating things about Germanic law, and especially medieval Icelandic law, is the extent to which the society relied on principles of collective liability and feuding in its dispute resolution process. So I was there in northern Iceland. I was thinking about uh, ancient Germanic law. I was thinking about feuding. I was thinking about American constitutionalism. And then there was another society I was thinking about as well, or two. The main one was Afghanistan, and the other was Iraq. It was impossible as an American abroad at the time not to be constantly confronted with questions from Icelanders and other Europeans about American involvement in those societies. And I have, I had and still have students who are there as soldiers. So I was thinking about Afghanistan and thinking about the renowned propensity of uh, of the uh, Pashtun society to engage in feuding behavior as well. And at a certain point, thinking about Afghanistan, thinking about medieval Iceland, and thinking about American constitutionalism, a kind of electric current jumped all of those gaps. And that's how the book ultimately was born. One of the more interesting things um, at the beginning of the book is you talk about individualism and its place in American law and other, you call them liberal societies, um, and how that's sort of anathema to clan societies. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. I don't mean to say that clan societies, that is, societies whose legal systems are structured in significant ways on the basis of kinship, don't have a conception of individualism, or that uh, persons within those societies don't have a very strong sense of psychological and personal independence. But the legal systems that I call the rule of the clan that exist along a spectrum throughout history and around the world emphasize as a legal matter the interests of the group, especially the extended lineage group or clan, over the individual. And you can think of uh, two paradigmatic instances of that. One is the importance of collective liability in what today we would know as criminal law. So in modern liberal societies, if you do the crime, you do the time. That's not so much the case under the principles of collective liability and blood feud that are so essential to the rule of the clan. There, if your cousin does the crime, you may metaphorically 
do the do the time or be subject to retributive violence as a result of your cousin's action. But another example would be a collective land holding, right, where in modern liberal societies the the most important form uh, legal form of land holding is fee simple absolute property interests in land that's not so much the case under the rule of the clan where land can be depending on the kind of clan society you're talking about often is held collectively by the group and individuals only have a temporary or usufruct interest in the land it seems to me like uh, some of the clan dynamics you talked about in the book do apply to certain periods of American life, or at least um, certain areas. I'm thinking of, say, Tammany Hall, where who you were related to was, was very important and you owed loyalty to you know, a central chief kind of a figure. Um, how do you think we moved away from that? What do you think was the reason we started moving away from clan dynamics and towards individualism? Well, in, in some respects, I don't think we have moved away from that. I think the rule of the clan is an ever-present threat for modern liberal societies. And you can, you can see the possibility of modern liberal states reverting to a kind of clanism if you look to parts of, even in the United States, where the writ of the state doesn't fully run. So, for instance, look at gang behavior in American inner cities, and you'll find feuding patterns that are a great deal like those of ancient clans, although, of course, gangs are dedicated to unlawful activity. Ancient clans are not. In any case, the, the fact of or the, the phenomena of gang violence, which looks a great deal like uh, traditional clan violence, highlights the fact that the impulse toward the rule of the clan is a deep-seated part of uh, human social organization. In some ways, it's as deeply seated in our social organization as our psychological and sexual drives are in human nature as, as well. So the, the instance you talk about, Tammany Hall, is, I think, just one example of the possibility, the ever-present possibility of the uh, reestablishment of the rule of the Klan right in the heart of liberal democratic societies. But, but you also ask, how do you overcome the rule of the Klan? How did we overcome the rule of the Klan? And there I would say the following. The, the rule of the Klan is overcome most importantly as a legal matter when a society develops a sense of public identity that's larger than and transcends the particularity and the particular loyalties to extended family groups or collective groups of all kinds, uh, that is, to the clan, because it's only through the establishment of that common public identity that you can create a state that will vindicate the interests and the rights of individuals as such. Do you think that there's anything that studying clan societies can teach us in a modern democratic society? Studying the rule of the clan in the many ways it exists across the world and has existed throughout history can teach liberals about the importance of maintaining a healthy, effective, robust, transparent, and legitimate state, a government because it's only, we see from the comparative perspective of the rule of the clan, 
that maintaining that state, it's only by maintaining that state that we can maintain the values of individual freedom that are at the core of our way of life. You know, in, in, in some ways, the, this book is about a, a common, widely held misperception about the relation between individual freedom and modern government. So we're, we're, we're often trained to think, and, and I should say I was too, that individual freedom is in fundamental tension with government and that the less government there is, the more free people are, and that at the same time the purpose of government is to foster the collective. And, and that's a view that's held in different ways in both the left and, and the right. But in fact, from the perspective of comparative long politics, from the perspective of the rule of the Klan, what we see is that precisely the opposite is true that in fact a, a healthy, effective government is essential to individual freedom. And the reason is that in the absence of government, or when states are weak, people look to collective organizations to resolve their legal problems and to regulate their social and legal affairs. And the most important group that provides this order is the extended family group, the clan. And Kinship groups are, are pretty effective at solving these problems, these legal problems, and providing order. And they offer a whole lot of distinct benefits that modern liberal governments don't. But because their legal principles are founded on the needs of the group, it's the rule of the clan that is the legal order of families and other collective organizations that exist when the state is weak. That's really the nemesis of individual freedom, not government and an effective state. So studying the rule of the Klan, I hope, can highlight for liberals. And when you say liberals, you don't mean versus conservatives. No, no, not at all. By liberals, uh, I don't mean uh, liberals in a partisan political sense. I mean those who are dedicated to principles of liberal democratic government, no matter what their party affiliation. I hope that it can highlight that for for liberals, it's essential. If you value individual freedom, you have to value and work to maintain and to foster effective government. And that is, I hope, uh, one of the main lessons that liberals will draw from the, uh, from the book. There are others, too. Right? So the studying the rule of the Klan, I hope, can highlight some of the ways in which liberal societies get into trouble abroad, either militarily or in their foreign policy, by not fully understanding uh, the planned societies with which we're involved. But as a, as a matter especially for lawyers and for especially those listening to the ABA podcast, I think that's what the rule of the Klan offers. It's a, I hope, a defense of the importance of maintaining effective government for the values of individualism. Did anything surprise you as you were researching the background of this book? It's surprising just how powerfully liberal democratic societies romanticize and valorize legal systems that are essentially anti-liberal in character. That is, the legal systems of the rule of the Klan. If you look to, say, popular movies, Avatar, for instance, uh, some of your listeners may have, may have seen the James Cameron movie of a few years back. 
all about the romantic quality of the clan society on the planet Pandora. Now, I think the rule of the clan and clans as social forms have a whole lot to teach liberal democratic societies on their own terms. That is, clans provide social goods that liberal societies don't, especially the value of solidarity and social justice. But at their core, there's something essentially anti-liberal about their character. And yet, if you look across the cultural life of, for instance, the United States or Western Europe, whether you're looking at popular culture or the high arts, clans are continually uh, held up in in really uh, praising terms. And that's quite interesting, and I think it says something about the cultural transformation that accompanies the development of the liberal rule of law out of the rule of the Klan. Coming from an Irish background, it it seems to me that um, the Irish and Scottish people romanticize a great deal about what the clans were back in the old country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is is a wonderful example of, uh, first, how it is that the memory, the positive memory of the ancient clans of Ireland and Scotland can coexist with a modern liberal state and a rule of law that protects individual freedom. Even more, I think it's possible that, in fact, it's precisely that uh, romanticizing of the ancient Celtic past that's essential for liberal legal development. That is, no liberal legal development out of a clan society unless clans themselves have a special romantic place within national memory. Clans ultimately need to transform from kind of hard legal entities that have actual uh, socio-legal control over their individual members to um, a, a soft cultural force whose significance is primarily uh, psychological and, and cultural for its, for its members and providing group affiliation. There does need to be a, a special place for the Klan in, in the national memory of societies that are otherwise liberal. And I think if we look to the model of Ireland or Scotland, from which your ancestors come, we could provide and we could find there an object lesson that we might want to bear in mind as we look warily across the world to other societies that are modernizing their legal systems or otherwise engaged in uh, a process of constitutional development. Because it may be that those societies, I'm thinking, for instance, uh, uh, in particular of the Middle East and North Africa, that those societies, as they modernize, they will legally, as they modernize as a matter of law, we may find an increased romanticizing and valorization of ancient kinship groups. And it will be really important for citizens of liberal states as we watch that process happening, not to mistake that romanticizing as a kind of atavistic regression, but instead possibly as the greatest sign of liberalism's legal advent. 
Well, Mark, I think that's a great place to leave off. Thank you so much for talking to us. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.